Deuteronomy is a series of speeches that Moses gives, and they are not yet to the promised land, but they are about to enter the promised land. And so he looks forward in chapter 17 to that time when they are settled in the land. When you have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you and have settled in it, and say, let us have a king like all the nations. You are to appoint the king that God chooses. He is not to be a foreigner. He is to be from among your own people, not a non-Israelite. The king is not to acquire for himself many horses or, uh, or to send the people to return to Egypt for more horses. For the Lord has said, you shall not go that way again. He is not to take for himself many wives, for they may lead his heart astray. He shall not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. But when he has taken possession of the throne, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law that he gets from the Levitical priests. He is to always have this with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, and not think that he is better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law either to the right or to the left. If you do this, when you take possession of the throne, you and your descendants will reign long in the kingdom of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Even though there's been 30 years of peace in Egypt, even though they have uh, cooperated with uh, the United States in trying to uh, limit terrorism, and even though they haven't attacked Israel in those 30 years, it is apparent to me that President Mubarak was not a good leader. Now, I do not say that because of the thousands of people that gathered in the square to protest and to call for his resignation. I say it because of the revelations that have come out that Egypt's people, 40% of them live at or below the poverty line. And while they are living in poverty, the president himself has gained a billion, five billion, seven billion dollars in different accounts. No one knows for sure. It is apparent to me that that is not a good leader to line your own pockets. While your people starve. But it's probably not apparent to everyone. I suppose it wouldn't have been apparent to uh, the former leader of Tunisia, Ben Ali, who, while his people struggled, lined his own pockets with millions of dollars. Probably not very apparent to baby Doc Chevalier when he was leading Haiti. Back in 1980, even though his people were among, at uh, that time as they are today, the poorest in the whole world, he spent $3 million on his own wedding he lived in extravagance while his people starved. Probably wasn't apparent to Charles Taylor, who for years reigned in the African country of Liberia. Just after the transition and he uh, was removed from power and had escaped, uh, Dinah and I, Pastor Dinah and I were a group with a group of people that came into Liberia. And I can tell you going through the Capitol building that Charles Taylor and his regime took everything in Liberia from the people that was not nailed down and even some stuff that was nailed down. Probably not apparent to everyone what a good leader is or a bad leader. Wouldn't have been very apparent in Moses' day to everyone. Would not have been apparent to the Mesopotamian countries that would border 
Israel. For there, their kings did not govern by rule of law. Their kings decreed law and issued laws that were beneficial and favorable to the king and and to the monarchy. And the king did this without opposition, for the king said he was chosen by God and could do that. And then they had come out of Egypt. And in Egypt, Pharaoh had taxed the people had enslaved many other peoples, all in an effort to build pyramids and other buildings that would guarantee the Pharaoh's entrance into eternal life. Many of the people starved, but the king, the Pharaoh, was cared for. So it may not have been apparent to everyone the difference between a good leader and a bad leader. And so God anticipates the day when the people will say, we want a king like all the other nations. And basically God says, well, yes. And no, yes, you can have a king, but he must be from among your people. And then God says, but no, the king will not be allowed to do these three things. And Jane outlined them for the children. One of them was this. The king is not allowed to accumulate large number of horses. It, it involves, if I may use the phrase, it involves you in horse trading with other countries. It, it, it puts you in alliances with them. You begin to rely on them, not on God, for your uh, well-being and for your defense. Horses were often tied in, of course, with uh, cavalry and with chariots. And so horses were a sign of military strength. It might lead you to depend on your own army and not to depend on the Lord, the God of Israel, to protect you. And it might send you back toward Egypt to get the horses. And God had said, you're not going back there ever. The second thing is the king was not to take many wives. And this was not a matter of marital fidelity. That's covered in the Ten Commandments. This is a matter of political alliances. Often to cement an alliance between two families, two nations, as you know, they might marry one of their daughters to the king of another country, thus cementing the alliance between the two. It was a matter of trusting in your own political maneuverings and your own ability to work out treaties for your defense and not to depend on the Lord your God. And then finally, the king was told not to accumulate large amounts of silver And gold for that uh, was to signal that the king was not to live in self-aggrandizement and the king was not to be about opulence. The king, as it's clear in Psalm 72 that we read this morning, the king is to be about the well-being of the people, not his own personal satisfaction. Well, if you're king of Israel and you know you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other, what can you do? Well, God says this is what you can do. You can get a copy of the law from the Levitical priest and you can write down for yourself the law of God. And the king is to do that, to always keep it on him. The rabbis said that the king would always have two copies, one in the treasury and then one on his person all the time. But I got to tell you, to copy the word of God is a very painstakingly slow process. Uh, There are no erasers. There's no whiteout. And the word of God is so critical, you must get every jot and every mark exactly correct. And the more you work at it to get it correct, of course, the more familiar you get with the word of the Lord. So the king was supposed to be doing this with his time, not making political alliances, not building up his army, not accumulating wealth or building large palaces. And part of the benefits are these. First of all, the king realizes then that he's not God. If you're copying down painstakingly the word of God, you realize, well, if there's a word of God, you must not be God. And there's no confusion between you and God. 
You may recall the tradition in, in Rome a few centuries later when conquering generals would come uh, back through the arch, and they, uh, the arch and they would be celebrated uh, uh, by the people and they would be cheered and treated as gods. You'll recall the tradition was they would always be a slave whispering in the ear of the general, remember you're only a man. Remember you're only a man. When you copy over the word of God and study it, you remember that you're only a man or a woman. You are not God. The other thing it reminds you of is that you are just like your brothers and sisters in the country. You are all subject to the same God. You are all subject to the same law. There are no exceptions. Not everybody um, doesn't get to do this, but the king does. You are reminded that you are no better than anyone else, and you serve for the betterment of everyone else and not for your own satisfaction. And so these rules are given for the king. And when the king follows them, as Jane pointed out to the children, what you get is someone like King David. If you want to know the the history of Israel in a very condensed form, you can go to Psalm 78. It's like the Reader's Digest version. But you get to the end of Psalm 78, and this is what it says, that David shepherded the people with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. David led in a way that God wanted the kings to lead. Now, as Jane pointed out, he certainly wasn't perfect. And there was a time that David decided he needed another wife. There was a time when David decided, well, maybe he should enjoy some of the perks of his office. And bad things came upon his family, upon his throne, and upon the nation of Israel. But the real picture of what it looks like when a king doesn't get any of these three things right is, as Jane pointed out to the children, Solomon. 12,000 horses. 700 wives, silver and gold out the year. The people burdened, the people enslaved, the people overtaxed. Solomon lives in a palace before he ever gets started on God's temple. Now the good news about Solomon is Solomon at first in the beginning asked God for wisdom and got it and, and ruled wonderfully well. Uh, The bad news about Solomon is he began to break every one of these things that Moses had commanded the king not to do. He not only went back to Egypt, he married someone from the house of Pharaoh. And then, as mighty as his empire was, and it was the largest the empire of Israel would ever be, there were cracks, and it would begin to fall away. And finally, one day, God came to Solomon in a dream and said, it's all going to come apart. Now, because I love your father, David, you'll still sit on the throne. But after you, it's going to go to pieces. And in fact, it did. And so, as Jane pointed out, the time was right, finally, for a king who would rule after what God wanted. And that king, of course, was Jesus himself. And you might say, well, how did Jesus come as king to his people? What characterized the use of power? And I would tell you that there's an illustration in Mark 10 where the disciples are arguing and fighting with one another, trying to get their needs met as opposed to the needs of the whole. And finally, Jesus says, you know, you're not going to be like this. You're going to be like me. And then he gives them this description. I am among you as one who serves. And he did it. He did it so much that when Paul was summarizing the life and ministry and resurrection of Jesus, Paul put it this way to the Philippians, that though Jesus was the Son of God, he lowered himself, humbled himself, and came in the form of a 
servant. And then said, and then one day every knee will bow to him. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. And that's the call to leaders everywhere. To be about the will of God and the blessing and betterment of their people. And you might be saying, why am I sitting through this? I'm not a king. I'm not a queen. I'm not a representative. I'm not an official. And the biblical answer is, yeah, you are. You were all kings. You're all queens. The Bible is clear that you are the royalty of God. And to add further to the matter, you all have your own kingdoms. You all have your own spheres of influence. Your children, your grandchildren, volunteers who work with you in neighborhood associations, employees who are employed by you. Uh, people that you associate with in a Sunday school class or a small group. You have a sphere of influence. And you need to know that your words and your actions affect other people. They simply do. Everything you do has a positive or negative effect on other people. It's just it, there's no neutral actions. And as a representative of God, you must make sure that your actions honor God and lift up people. Not deny God, make yourself God, and elevate yourself. Those are the two ways that you can do it. You are a king. You are a queen in your own kingdom. And the way you act and the way you talk makes a difference. Not just for you, but for everybody that comes into contact with you. To get the task of a king or queen right is absolutely essential. There's a story that Herman Hess wrote. Years ago, a short story called The Journey East, about a group of people who were going into an unknown territory toward a destination. And they had a guide who was also their servant. His name was Leo. And Leo was pretty amazing. He not only uh, guided them, cooked for them, cleaned for them, helped them set up camp, helped them take down camp. He did it all, served and tried to respond to every need they would have as they went into this unknown territory. But as they got close to the goal, to the territory that they wanted to reach, as they got close to the village where they were supposed to end up, Leo disappeared. Their servant, their guide, he was gone. But fortunately, they were close enough to the village that they made it the rest of the way. And when they entered the village, they saw a most interesting sight. The people gathered around their leader. The leader is sitting on a chair like a throne with the symbols of leadership and kingship on his head and in his hand. And when they draw closer, they see that this king is their servant, Leo. The one who has guided them and served them all the way to this point is actually the leader of the place where they are going. As a Christian, this strikes me as quite similar to our experience. All of our lives, we are led, guided, and served by a great king. And one day we will come and kneel at his feet. And we'll be hit with the great truth that the one who has served us and loved us and guided us so well is the one destined to rule over us. And I think what he asks is during our earthly pilgrimage until we get united with him that we guide, that we live, that we rule, that we serve just the way he would. We are here to honor God. And to lift up other people, just as Jesus before us, and just as David before him, just as Moses intended.
may we not be about our well-being. May we be about the honor of God and the blessing of others.